tax tax, which is always exciting. GST. That's a great idea. More efficient tax. Due diligence now. Hey everyone and welcome. This is Tax Wrap brought to you by the tax specialists of Taxpayers Australia. Now we're up to episode uh, number eight, which is the, the first episode of the new year, which is a very exciting thing to be a part of. My name is Nathan Hewitt and we're joined by the usual suspect, <laughs> uh, Bill and Ange. How are you doing guys? Hi Nath. Happy yep. New Year everyone. Uh, happy New welcome Year Welcome back Nath. Yeah, it's um, good to be back. You too Ange. Yeah, thanks Bill. Let's get into it. Fire it up. Yep, ready to go mate. <laughs> I'm keen for a 2015 just filled with tax talk. Oh, <laughs> we all are. We all are. <laughs> My knowledge is just ripe for the picking. <laughs> now the first thing that we want to talk about this week is uh, uh, sort of a follow up to Project Do It. Um, yep. Over the Christmas period, it's been a little bit difficult to, to keep track of what's been going on. Um, but we'd like to, to sort of, yeah, signpost the progress so far and see what's been going on. So, uh, Bill and Ange, take us away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, we've heard that the take-up for the Project Do It deadline, which was, I think, 19th of December, thereabouts, yep. was actually quite huge. A lot bigger than the ATO had actually expected. Mm. with apparently quite a big sort of surge of applicants towards the very end of the due date period. So uh, interesting uh, theories floating around that we've been reading, Bill. Um, one of them being that the ATO said they had an informer. Yes. Someone, <laughs> so, a mole uh, uh, in, in a foreign jurisdiction picking up bank statements. Someone yeah. Was, uh, so it was kind of like if you don't disclose, well, we're going to sort of hit our informer up and get it anyway. Yeah. Which is quite funny considering that they're signing agreements with most jurisdictions anyway. Yeah. So I don't know why they need to worry about informers when the governments are going to give them the information Yeah, they've anyway. got the information exchange agreement in place. Yeah. Um, I found it really, really interesting, uh, George's talk on this. Yeah. Like the, the, the initial talk yeah. in a previous podcast. Yeah. Um, for, for me, what was really interesting is that they didn't actually have to make a disclosure by that date. They just had to notify the tax office that they would make a disclosure. Yeah, yeah, and apparently there's quite a few of those actually. And the ATO has commented on their website that if you've lodged an expression of interest, you know, you still have the time to actually lodge the full disclosure mm. and still be um, eligible for the concessionary treatment. So essentially, they just put their hand up and say that we will make a disclosure. Yeah, yeah. But they, yeah, so that's, that was really interesting to me, Ange. I thought you would have to make the disclosure. I have day. seen it done before with voluntary disclosures um, initiated by the taxpayer. I haven't seen it done where it's an actual amnesty like this. Okay. But, you know, it's well, interesting. And what do you make of the estimate of six six hundred million dollars worth of revenue being picked up just by just by this program? Well, I guess that's an initial estimate, but once these uh, expressions of interest have come through, have yeah. come through, I mean that might be that figure might revise upwards again. Mm. But I mean, really, it's a lot out of the tax till, isn't it? Mm. Well, I guess the thing is, in my mind, I I, I sort of question um, whether or not because because the other sort of uh, key statistic there was that close between four and ten percent of the individuals that made the voluntary disclosures were high net worth individuals mm. so I think that was the other interesting takeaway yep um, what do you make of the tax evasion in that space well it all ties back to one of the other issues we were discussing before Christmas being um, tax evasion generally mm. so we had discussion on big companies like your Facebooks and etc. Um, it just 
goes to reflect on that issue, it's broader than probably what a lot of people realised it is. Yeah. And uh, and high net worth individuals obviously have the resources and the best accountants and also find ways and means around tax as well. It might yeah. be legitimately, it may be fully well, legally, but... But in this case, it's not. That's, well, that's, that's just My understanding it. is it's just a non-disclosure. And, and, that, and that is surprising, I think. I think if you consider that these particular individuals can afford the best tax <coughs> advice there is. It's quite surprising, so... Mm. Mm. Well, I guess it's what you can get away with, Anne. Uh, that's yeah? right, yeah. yeah. That's true. <laughs> to some extent. Often what it comes down to. Which yeah. is cynical, I know, but, yeah. Coming back to that, um, you, you were talking about uh, being able to not disclose but say that you were going to disclose. Mm. Yes. Was that something that was always part of the Project Do It thing? Was that? I don't know that... The ATO specifically made a point of that, um, but it, as I said before, it has been done before, mm. so maybe just common practice, a lot of, uh, especially where tax accountants were preparing it for clients, they probably knew that that is a scenario. Yeah. And it is a legitimate process because sometimes it might be a matter of the client has um, very complex affairs and it's... To work it out. Yeah. Maybe they've got uh, income or assets in a number of jurisdictions and they're trying to pull the information together. So they've put their hand up to say, yes, we do have stuff to declare. Mm. However, we're not in a position to quantify what that amount is. Mm -hmm. So it is a fairly legitimate process and the ATO does deal with it. But it would be interesting to say just how much extra revenue they'll get out of these forthcoming. And I guess the, the other unknown is the assets that are now captured and so like they've got you know several billion dollars worth of assets that they now know about yeah um and and the ato systems are getting better at better at tracking those sort of assets i mean it's it sounds like the program went well yeah i would say on the whole it does i was quite surprised by that not really knowing what to expect it as well um compare this to to project wickenby then yeah um has this been a more positive result on the whole, would you say? Probably as an initial outcome, yes. So Project we can be in its infancy, let's say, mm. wasn't very successful. No. Um, the project was costing the ATO and, and the government agencies involved probably more than what they were recovering in tax. Mm. Uh, but as a whole project, Project we can be now is very successful and has actually... Uh, recovered a lot of tax so I think even beyond that um, the culture of compliance was changed by Project Wickenby Mm. people after Project Wickenby had the fear of God in them they they were scared of the ATO and were more more I guess uh, proactive in complying with the tax law that's that's what I felt yeah the concern was that this sort of law and law of diminishing returns thing where um, you know the, the tax office shows their teeth and then doesn't really follow through to to a grand extent. That's that's right, and I think by by having a voluntary disclosure regime um, first, potentially the ATO is sort of signposting that they don't have the resources to go after tax evaders. Or is it more like a, a, a sort of a, a goodwill thing? I was well, thinking probably yeah. the goodwill thing. I mean, if you consider how much bad publicity um, the government got in trying to keep um, Paul Hogan in the country. Yes, okay. And if you recall the farce that that was and, mm. and the fact that they were trying to hold him in Australia and not let him go home to the States and, you know, that was such bad publicity for them okay. that this 
it's that whole concept of you know uh, more flies with honey than yeah. you know than vinegar yeah exactly I think they're they're trying to show hang on guys let's work together we're going to have a really cooperative approach on this mm. and they're trying to engage the community as opposed to doing what they did the last yeah, time that yeah. was horrific well look I think <laughs> I think it did go off without a hitch I guess only time will tell yeah. whether it changes the culture of taxpayers' behaviour. Okay, what is that timeline? Like, when when do we see this coming through to a resolution? Ooh. Like, oh, I, look, over the next five to ten years, okay. if compliance activity changes, uh, if I guess the only way you can really judge it um, is by looking at audits post that voluntary disclosure period. Yeah, and and seeing whether whether or not the quantum of of money that's um, being found in those audits is less because okay. of that project. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, uh, Tony Abbott's white paper is something. It's a subject that's pretty much on everybody's lips. Mm. Uh, it's it's raised more questions than it's answered. I think in the last couple of months, especially over the Christmas period, uh, people have forgotten about it, and we want to remind them. And also, in conjunction with that, the GST Act reforms. Mm-hmm. Now, it's come to light over the last couple of days that the Commonwealth seems to have little to no idea about Commonwealth law <laughs> and, and whether or not they have the, the exclusive power to, to legislate in the area of tax reform. Look, being the cynical person that I am, Nathan, I actually don't, I don't agree with you. I think they do know exactly what they can legislate on and what they cannot. Okay. Um, I think it is a political strategy that they're putting out there um, to basically say, look, we can't change the GST unless all of the states and territories are on board. Yes. It, it sort of gives um, the public a little bit more comfort to say, okay, they can't change it, when in actual fact, sorry guys, the government can change it whenever they want. Mm-hmm. They yep. don't need any state involvement at it's all. It's their That's constitutional right. Exactly. So it's an exclusive power in the constitution. Yeah. They're actually, Tony Abbott and more recently Matthias Cormann are both incorrect when they say that they need the involvement of the states and the territories. That's, that's right. Provided they don't discriminate against any one state or part of a state yeah. when they're legislating in that area, they can do whatever they'd like with the GST. So I think, look, both both Matthias Cormann and Tony Abbott have, have reiterated that line that they can't make changes without the states. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess they, they're sort of... And whether or not this is a cynical ploy as well, um, they're sort of using their junior ministers, uh, Dan Tehan and Josh Frydenberg, who's the assistant treasurer now, to sort of uh, push GST reform um, f- into the retail sector and say, look, the $1,000 um, exemption yeah. from GST that, <laughs> that non-residents get will close that loophole down. Yeah. Now, they're sort of using that to test the waters in terms of GST reform. Yeah. With, with I guess that that being the carrot, and then introducing their wider reform agenda. That's that's what it looks like. Being the cynical person that I am. Yep. Um, but what what do you make of that, Ange? Well, maybe firstly, for those of our loyal listeners that maybe aren't quite in work mode yet, okay. um, <laughs> and probably haven't heard too much about this as yet. Firstly, I guess I'll explain the thousand dollar threshold that you're referring to so yep. for, for most of us that would that would come into play for example if we do a bit of online shopping um, and order some things in from overseas at the at the moment you get an exemption that there's no GST payable on that amount as long as your shopping total is less than a thousand dollars so what they're trying to do is capture that 
shopping online. They're trying a lot of retailers actually initially did uh, say that it's unfair that they have to include GST on their prices, but yep. then when we all shop online, we get it GST free effectively. That's right. Um, so that's where that stemmed from, and then I think the other big hoo-ha at the moment is that. Um, there's talks of uh, adding GST to things that have typically been GST free, such as uh, fresh food, health, and education. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Um, I'm with you, Bill. That probably it's cloak and dagger a little bit. This well, it of... is, and I think probably Abbott's using the states as a bit of a scapegoat to say, oh well, you know, if it goes through, it's going to be because they've cooperated with us to help us get through on this. And it, quite it, frankly, at any time, as you say, he can make that choice himself. It's a false sense of security that I think he's giving the public. Yep. And I think the public is sort of saying, oh, so they can't make these changes because there are two Labor state governments now, uh, being South Australia and Victoria. Mm. And um, so, I, I mean, he's sort of holding that out there. He's also holding out um, the Retail Industry Association to say, hey, these guys want GST changes in the form of a reduction or abolition of that $1,000 exemption mm -hmm. for, for like internet um, vendors. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So I guess he's sort of using that two-pronged approach to say, okay, one, we can't even make changes. Mm. Two, the retail industry wants, wants changes to sort of try and garner some public support for this change yep. and, and then institute, I guess, more regressive changes such as, you know, putting it on, on, on food and putting it on education, yeah. etc. Yeah, it is it is very smoke smoke and mirrors at the yeah, moment. Yeah, and I don't like it. I think he, he needs to have an honest conversation. Stop, um, stop trotting out old lines about states needing to be involved. Yeah. Stop trying to use buffers like that retail association yep. to push his line yep. and just just level with people. Look, I think it's I think it's in his interest to actually work with the states on it. But to say that he cannot make any move or he cannot legislate without the states, then that's just misleading, misleading and false. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I would agree. I think uh, it was Russell Zimmerman from the Australian Retailers Association who um, uh, you know, they had something to say on the matter, uh, obviously. And they were talking about uh, lowering the threshold to thirty dollars for so the the GST would kick in for purchases made over thirty dollars. Is that correct? First of all, I thought it was three hundred, but that's okay. okay. I mean, we, we can check these facts, but it definitely is going to be reduced significantly under the suggestions that. Okay, have been yeah, that is my main point. If it is reduced that much, how yeah. does that change things? Well, see, I guess the thing is, it, it does add compliance costs Absolutely. so all of these businesses that are overseas that haven't had to comply with the GST rules all of a sudden will have to go all right if we're selling to Australia mm. we do need to be aware mm. uh, that potentially we'll be making taxable supplies where those taxable supplies um, in like our, where our turnover from those taxable supplies is over the threshold which is $70,000 we'll have to register for GST in Australia and collect GST from, from yeah. various, various... And from an individual standpoint, I guess the issue is you're, you're not going to be able to claim that GST back. Mm. You're not a... You're, no, you're, you're the end You're user. the end consumer. Yeah. You're not able to claim that GST back. So suddenly your internet purchases are... 10% more 10 expensive. 10% more expensive, mm. if not more, because if some of those businesses factor the administration behind mm. yeah. the GST, then it might they might actually charge you 12 or 15% more. Who well, knows? Well, the other issue is, you know, these internet businesses are paying customs duties, taxes in their own jurisdiction. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, 
you know, I guess my question, and not, not to sort of have a go at the retail association, but how competitive are they in terms of offering the best price? Have they factored in um, the, the taxes and charges that these their competitors in international jurisdictions are paying? And are they just simply not competitive? Mm. That's So, I mean, that's a question that needs to be asked before they can prosecute that argument, I would say. And I think, I think also the retail industry has to look at itself closely because the whole reason why so many Australians now shop online is because they're realising that... It's so much cheaper. It's just not competitive in Australia. And, and we don't have the... the well, firstly, the the scope of choice mm. we're limited in choice and it's it's at least twice or three times more expensive to buy something in australia mm. so maybe maybe the issue isn't the gst maybe the issue is that competitiveness yeah, yeah no I, I agree i i would like the productivity commission to look at that specific issue yeah and and determine whether or not you know the retail industry's just had it good for too long and they've been become a little bit complacent and they need to sort of look at their cost structure and, yep. and make changes or um, their claims are correct and that they are sort of fighting with one hand behind their back as Tony Abbott keeps keeps alluding to. Yep, yep, definitely support that. Mm. I've got a question from one of our more loyal podcast listeners, uh, Paul Greenfield, reached out to me the other day. Now he's got a question in regards to FBT and minor benefits. Oh, great. <laughs> uh, I'll read it out exactly as he's typed it here. My question is in regard to FBT and minor benefits. Can an FBT minor benefit ever involve food or does it need to be anything but food? Also, um, yeah, no, sorry, that, that's the extent of the question. So okay. can, an, can an FBT minor benefit ever involve food or does it need to be anything but food? Oh, good question, Paul. And and the answer is depends. So um, <laughs> if we're talking food um, provided by the employer in the way of meal entertainment, uh, if they're using the actual method for calculating the FBT on meal entertainment, then they are actually allowed to apply the minor benefits rule. Mm -hmm. If they're using the 50-50 method, because it is a concessional method in itself, the minor benefits exemption is not available. Okay. So... Um, I guess the answer is depends which method you're using, depends what kind of food we're referring to and the scenario in which it's given. I think everyone um, gets tripped up with that one. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, so uh, I encourage anyone who's got a really specific question, um, like for example, Paul, if you have an actual specific example, um, happy to answer you. <laughs> I actually think he does here. Oh, does he? Oh. Um, I just wasn't sure if that was part of the, the boilerplate of the email oh. or not. Um, an employee was at a client meeting and I would like to claim the employee's cafe lunch, no alcohol involved, under FBT minor benefits. So, Again, it would depend what they treat all their meal entertainment as. Okay. And is it minor and infrequent? Because I think yeah. a lot of people sort of say it's a minor benefit, yep. but if this guy's having coffee every week, it's yep. clearly not... It's clearly yeah, so infrequent time. isn't actually uh, legislated anywhere. Like, there's no sort of uh, oh, 40 times a year. The definition. Is yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, so what what you have to look at is the role of the person. So if that person's in say marketing, or they're a director, and basically their role is to go out and network and schmooze with people, um, quite often the the ATO would look at that and go, well, that's not infrequent because you're doing it on a regular basis. Yeah. That's part of your job. That's part of your role. So there's yeah a few factors that need to be considered. Mm. I guess be very careful when you're interpreting that legislation. That's the only comment I'd make. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, that's good. That's good advice. Yeah. So it, I guess it just does depend on um, 
quite a lot of factors and, and yep. some factors are not easily quantifiable. But you and these are, these are the types of issues that we tend to um, deal with directly with members mm -hmm. um, through the helpline service we've got. Mm -hmm. So um, it's something that might be worth looking at for those of you that just have the occasional uh, technical query mm. um, because then we can actually look at the very specific circumstances and give you a bit more of a directed, directed answer. And, and just a hint to any members that are listening, <laughs> if you have an FBT type query, <laughs> the best person to speak <laughs> to is Angela. <laughs> Um, Thanks, Phil. That, that, no, 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 that is her specialty. That's in her former life. That is who she was. Yeah. Mrs. FBT. Yeah, so thanks. direct that thanks, to Angela. Um, if you get me, I'll probably ask her the question anyway. So, thanks, so, Phil. so do that. Sorry, guys. So in short, yeah, Paul, we'd advise you to, to, um, to consider calling up our helpline. Um, comprehensive advice. Yeah, absolutely. From, um, from Ange or Bill. Um, I think it's time to wrap up the uh, the first episode of 2015, uh, the first or the eighth episode in our um, series. This has been Tax Wrap for Bill and Ange. I'm Nathan. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Thank guys. You. Bye. Bye. Bye.